Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Red Mage. Today I would like to share an interview with special guest Tara Furiani, CEO of the podcast Not the HR Lady, a weekly web series and podcast for learning and coaching community, a people consultancy firm, and a movement towards all things people. And she's also the author of Fuck Your Office Snacks. Tara's extensive background as a chief people's officer gives her a lot of insight to the workplace, and she offers services such as uh, being a public speaker, a people strategist, and executive team builder. You can check out her work at notthehrlady.com. So prior to playing this interview, I want to give the audience a heads up that there is a very graphic description uh, later in our interview. I also want to apologize for a couple of technical difficulties that occurred during uh, the interview. We did our best to get through everything, and some of the technical difficulties are only more towards the beginning of the interview. But ultimately, Tara provides a lot of great insight and shares a lot of her expertise when regarding mental health in the workplace. And just for reiteration, there is a graphic element in this episode. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the interview. So, so Tara, um, you are passionate about guiding executives, leaders, teams, and making these breakthrough experiences, and you're a tireless advocate for equity in the workplace. Um, Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on this show. And right now I am working on a, a project that is examining esports as an extreme work condition. Um, the area I'm exploring is mental health and the impacts of stress and anxiety. And with your experience as a chief uh, people officer, what can you inform us about uh, mental mental wellness and workplace health? You know, this is a topic, uh, and thank you for having me, by the way, Josh. I'm really, really happy to be here. Uh, and I love the work that you're doing. I'd mentioned that my son uh, wants to be a game builder as well, and he has absolutely got the empathetic uh, touch that I think is necessary in sort of the work that you're doing. So I'm really excited to be here and be on your show. Uh, and mental wellness is something that I talk a lot about because it's often so stigmatized in the world of work. You know, we don't call out uh, we, because we're having a hard mental day. I mean, maybe some of us do now, but that's not the norm. We would call, you know, <laughs> I'm sick. Uh, when really we just can't get out of bed because we're suffering from depression, anxiety, something, you know, has happened in our lives that I just can't deal today. I mean, the whole phrase like, I can't adult today or I'm done adulting, uh, that's, that's real, that's mental health right there. And we need, I think, in my opinion, as a leader, as an executive, somebody who has influence over whether these things are normalized or not, we need to do better as leaders to help destigmatize mental illness and promote mental wellness uh, in the workplace, in, in school, in, in all places, really. Just, we don't go to, you know, back in the day, you hear about these insane asylums. And I think, you know, that, that's a lot of where the, the stigma stands from or comes from, but it's not really as well known today why there's sort of stigma around it, right? But the, the way it came about was just a generation like before me, if you had severe migraines, you could wind up in one of those like super creepy mental institutions that you hear that are scary, right? These insane asylums, these 
you know, monstrous terrorist kind of places um, that make your, your skin crawl. And that's sort of where like the stigma sort of came from. I mean, if women had really bad period cramps, you could get sent to one because they think you're hysterical. And so talking about emotions and feelings has long been avoided in the workplace. And I really feel strongly that we need to change that. That's just as uh, much of a condition that has the opportunity to be treated and dealt with, with empathy and compassion and care as, as cancer does as a cold does, as the flu does, as anything that you don't feel ashamed in saying does. Like mental health and mental wellness is just, it's vital, isn't it? It's a vital, important part of how a leader um, should think about leading uh, and through their own, you know, authenticity with sharing their own struggles, whatever that looks like, or just being open and available in the kind of leader that one can talk to when they're not actually sick with a cold, but instead are, you know, suffering with the sickness that is anxiety, that is, you know, depression, that is PTSD, that is a number of viable mental uh, conditions and problems that need to be treated with the same care as the flu. You know, that that is so true. I think sometimes when we talk about mental health, the thing that we immediately go to is something like schizophrenia um we we think of you know these very extreme cases but that's not always the case um and even then that carries a lot of stigma with it like you mentioned what what does a healthy workplace look like and how can employees measure you know take measure of that early on there are so many different ways to define a healthy workplace but some of the early like you know, good green flags, like, yes, this is a, this is a great place to be mm. is, you know, do they walk the talk? Like when you were sold on the salary, the job, how wonderful they were, you know, what, what questions I think were you asking as a candidate and what were, what was the company promising? And those to do those two align, in my opinion, all organizations should have a solid people strategy in place. And a people strategy is not just how do we hire and fire folks, right? A people strategy is how do we hire to bring value to our organization through diversity of experience, through diversity of thought. Uh, you know, there's so many opportunities for us to do better in a lot of different ways. And for organizations, it's really being about that. And I, somebody said it last night, we had a, a episode three of season two of our show, Not the HR Lady, was last night and somebody I think said it best. D what does DEI stand for was the question. Like, what does it even mean? One of our fans asked one of our panelists and our panelist, Lauren uh, Bornstein, uh, uh, sorry, Bornstein, uh, Lauren Bornstein, he had said, uh, DEI means not being an asshole. <laughs> and I really thought that that's the best descriptor of it because you, you know, coming to a strategy around people is about all the facets that make up the humans in your workplace. And like, we don't turn off our humanness when we walk in the door. I'm still a woman. I'm still in the LGBTQ community. I am still a mother. I am still the daughter of biracial parents. Like I, I'm still all of the me's that I am. I'm still divorced, right? I'm still all of the things in my life when I come and real organizations are now recognizing that like you don't own us between the hours of eight and five and to think in that way to think that 
you know, we're doing you a favor by employing you as opposed to, hey, if we all are rowing in the same boat, in the same direction, championing for the same things, and we're all making money and living our lives and have the ability to be people as well, that's what I mean when I say people strategy. And and it sounds like, oh, woo-woo and fluffy. And I'll tell you, a lot of companies get it really wrong right now. Uh, but what you can do right is just get started. If you've never even considered what a people strategy even means, if, if you're scratching your head about like, where do I even begin? That That's a really good time to start thinking about who you can help, have help you define what that is because it's all of those components, including mental wellness. And you know, we think about wellness plans in the workplace and everybody's everybody's experienced the company that has, well, we'll give you the gym membership or we're all doing like whole 30 as a company and we're paying for it. It's always weight motivated. That's what I'm getting at. Hmm. Oftentimes it's like step challenges. You know, it's, it's uh, the biggest loser challenges. We're losing weight. We're eating healthy. We're doing dry January, but nobody ever wants to, to invest in like solid mental wellness plans. One of the things I found, and I this is I'm not endorsing any one company, but so everyone can just look up whatever uh, whatever I say, which is so many online mental health providers have emerged, even more so. There were several before the pandemic. Now there are hundreds, literally, who can even prescribe medication, non-narcotic. So they're using like off-label stuff that you wouldn't normally get if you went to like a real doctor, for example. Mm. Um, and I'm not suggesting they're not real doctors. There's just different rules around certain things. So you can't get like Xanax through the mail, right? But what you can do is talk to a, a licensed therapist, either via a Zoom call, through an app. A lot of them do it different ways. And if necessary, and medical treatment or prescription intervention is required, uh, that's a part and they send it to you or they call it in. There's so much that has happened in the space of really talking about and creating services around these mental health providers. My hope next is that organizations start tapping in and these, and these mental health providing apps and organizations start reaching out for cross-promotional type things where let's offer this as a benefit. Several years back, pet insurance became a huge thing. Really cheap, not expensive um, to administer, and it's like an add-on to company benefits where the company doesn't pay. The employee pays completely out of pocket. But it's like a nice little weird kitschy thing and if people have pets and it's a super pet friendly office that's like a really cool benefit to have but like what's cooler because uh, pets are awesome and i love dogs as much as the next but having these those same kind of ancillary benefit type things to supplement you know your crappy uh health insurance because let's just be real it's all really crappy um and you only get so many wellness visits and you only get you know so many uh visits with a psychiatrist if you even have that included if you even have insurance right yeah. so there's so many options for people who either don't have insurance to go get it on their own if they're an employee who's an independent contractor if you're a gig worker etc you can have access to that pretty cheaply now and i think that's awesome but better i think employers really need to start considering what additional mental health things they can offer. Like some of the stuff I'm mentioning, I don't want to have to drive and spend two hours of my day talking to a therapist in their office. Like that's just not reality anymore. COVID aside, like that's just not reality for most people. These concierge doctor concepts aren't new, mm. uh, but now they're becoming more accessible and more affordable. And this is a great opportunity why companies are saving money to partner with 
organizations like this to offer this benefit to your to your workers. I mean, look, you're saving probably millions of dollars in your lease expenses because you don't have offices anymore. Kick that money back to your employees and start start giving some stuff related to mental health, health and wellness. All of these things are included in a solid people strategy. And that is how we start to really get mental health to the forefront of it's a huge employee problem. I mean, think about like rampage killers or workplace killers. Most of the time I'd wager these are often driven by mental disorders that haven't been properly diagnosed, whether that's lack of access to care, whether that's their employer not setting them up for success, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, there's a lot of examples of people having serious mental challenges in the workplace and we just kind of brush them off as, oh, well, they're just crazy. Mm. And, and that sucks, you know, that, that nobody wants to hear that. And companies can do better. A people strategy, which includes every facet of peopleness, um, is how I believe organizations win moving forward. So that, that is just gold. But so I have <laughs> three questions that are stemming out of that. Okay. The first one is, it sounds like mental health and well-being in the workplace is a system. What, yeah. what are What are actions that a small business and a large corporation can take um, to start addressing this as a system? And then who are the active players uh, who moderate it, make the changes, and really fight for it? So I'm going to start with your second question first, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, the so I'm a really big proponent of your executive leadership team uh, drives how the organization is, period. Mm. Uh, if you have shit middle managers, I bet you you have shit executives. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> that you know, every, every one shit manager, there's a terrible executive team. I'm not saying that. But if all your managers kind of suck, like if everybody's like, oh, my God, these people suck, and they don't have access to people above them, I would wager the people above them also suck. It, it stems from somewhere. And if those people don't suck, then maybe the board does. It's a triple, it's a trickle down, right? And the only kind of trickle down that worked, it wasn't economics, but it's definitely leadership. Leadership trickle down is a real thing. And so I believe who has to champion it, who has to own it. I need to see the CEO talking about mental wellness. I need to see other C-level leaders um, letting people know that they're taking their vacation time. I need other C-level leaders to, to share some of their struggles. That is what folks are looking for. That's what representation looks like in one facet. You know, we talk a lot about DE&I related to race and gender, uh, but there's also a big component there, in my opinion, about mental health. I mean, this is also a, a protected class, if you will. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for leaders to demonstrate, lead the charge, be vulnerable, be open, and champion for an organization that is healthy financially, medically, mentally, uh, they need to have all of those things to, to, to be successful. And I think it starts with them. So what can you do? Uh, several things. You know, I, I'm a big believer in understanding what your people uh, need and want. Now, I'm not saying like survey the shit out of them. But what I am saying is definitely talk to people in your organization. Form, you know, if you want to form an employee action type committee, if you want to, you know, get folks together and get an opinion don't go it alone and if you can and it's i i do this work but i'm not promoting myself in this regard i can certainly help 
organizations find a, a right person. But if you don't know what you're doing, if a lot of the words, like I'm saying, for example, you don't understand and you're not sure if anybody in your organization does, find someone that does and help you. Don't just be performative. This isn't something you can just Google. You really need to have somebody invested, but better, you really need to decide if you're invested in the first place. And I think that is the key component. Don't don't glom on to the newest fad. I want everybody to change. I want every organization to win. I want everybody to be people first. But don't jump on to a fad and start something if you're not willing to see it through. Nobody wants PR. 100%. So, you know, on that note of kind of like of executives leading this, I was actually re-listening to um, your podcast, season one, episode six, uh, titled okay. The People Bunch. Um, your yep. guest, Nina uh, Grove, uh, who has a yes. background in psychology, mentioned that three out of 11 personality disorders are more common in executives than in criminal psychopaths. Uh, and she continued to state that CEOs are considered successful sociopaths, sorry, psych psychiatric patients. Um, are considered uh, successful uh, sociopaths and criminals are considered unsuccessful sociopaths. What does this mean for work culture and mental health in the workplace? <laughs> so that's an interesting question. Uh, and and I think what's, what's interesting when you think about like sociopaths, you know, they demonstrate extreme attitudes and behavior. And, you know, it's very true. I think most of us can think of one, you know, megalomaniac boss that they've ever had or leader in your organization. I can tell you that I've had one specifically mm. who jumped up on a table uh, in the middle of an executive team meeting, like jumped up on it. He was so angry, he pounded his fist first, then he got on his chair and then he jumped onto the table like it true psychopath, like true, truly a psychopath. And that's that's really challenging, but but much goes to the, what I said earlier at, at the earlier part of um, of this episode is, you know, it's been largely stigmatized. And when you think about the executive leadership, and especially uh, the study that Nina quoted, that episode was last year, and I'm sure the study was maybe a year or several years before that, yeah. even um, I'm not sure exactly the timing, but to to really think about. Um, uh, what CEOs traditionally have been like. And I, I want everyone to like remove their, because CEOs are coming out of the woodwork just being awesome left and right, um, right now. But that has not always been the case. Hmm. I think if we go back, if we dial it back five years earlier, that's that same generation. What I was talking about before, a generation maybe a little older than me, the generation before me, who were leading organizations at that time. And mental health is not something we talked about in the workplace because that meant you were crazy. It wasn't even that long ago that mental health wasn't even a part of standard benefit package offerings by brokers. Um, companies had to actually add that on, much like trans benefits and you know things things that are uh, were not largely considered like normal benefits to include in a healthcare package. Uh, it would save the company money if we don't do any kind of like psychologist or psychiatric, or if we do them, let's not pay them the same way we would pay if you broke your arm, for example. Uh, let's pay you have to pay sixty percent instead of it being covered one hundred percent by your insurance. Like you know, there were there were things that were that made it so it was either very expensive to seek out care on your own, whether you had insurance or not, or 
uh, you were just of the mentality that you had to have extreme sort of uh, ideals and behaviors and really like cutthroat. You think about like old uh, business movies, right? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, stuff where it's very cutthroat, salesy, CEO, like, you know, everybody's like got this real, real megalomaniac attitude. And, and I think that has a lot to do with how mental illness ha has been stigmatized throughout history up until sort of recently. Like we haven't been talking about mental wellness for what? Maybe a, maybe a few years at best with, with the most progressive of organizations. But I think that that breed of sociopath, sociopath CEO, is dying, uh, is, is, is really kind of, I hate to say this, but retiring almost at this point. And I'm not making it an ageist thing. I'm making it a generationally. My parents grew up differently with a different set of norms than I did you probably grew up differently than I did, right? My kids are going to grow up differently than you. Like it's, everybody has like this nuanced sort of like, here are the societal norms. Mm. Those societal norms right now are no longer that we have these egomaniac, um, you know, I know everything and you know nothing. It's my boat. I'm driving the ship. Like that's how it was of yesteryear. Now uh, we're seeing CEOs like Dan Price who are you know, calling out his fellow, you know, his counterpart CEOs and saying, look, if we, we are greedy, this is crazy. Uh, we need to be empathetic. We need to understand that our companies don't work without people. Um, we need to really take a look and start normalizing humanness in the workplace. And there's so much of that right now, which is beautiful to see it. It obviously I'm passionate about that work. But I agree with Mina's statement, and I certainly agree with wherever she quoted that from, maybe Harvard, Harvard Business Review or something. But uh, I think that is with time, wait, like waning itself, you know, as people retire, as they're, you know, they step down or they move into like board roles because they need someone else to actually drive the vision of the company in a different way, because that's the different way now. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think... I certainly think there's plenty out there that are still operating <laughs> as functional sociopaths. I know some of them, uh, but but I think certainly, hopefully their minds are shifting. At, at a minimum, their minds are shifting enough that now there are other people championing for this sort of thing within their organizations. Like I'm saying, they've either taken a chairman role or like a board role, uh, which is what they used to do crazily enough to, uh, did you know this? A fun fact I learned recently that uh, chief operating officers, or like people who used to work in operations, when they get past their prime, they would, I don't know what that means, but when they get past like whatever prime <laughs> they, they have, uh -huh. and I guess they're no longer valuable to the business, they like in an operational capacity with driving business, they would make them the chief HR officer. And so that's why at the very beginning of my profession, as an example, mm. um, there were so many men in the field and now there's so many women. And it's almost like a complete juxtaposition. And I thought that was like just an interesting little nugget that once people are done with their sociopathness, uh, they tend to move them into like different sort of roles. And I don't know that that's effective either, uh, but <laughs> but it's certainly an interesting thing to see happening. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's there's so much that kind of goes on with that. And even, even the identification of of things like that are related or symptoms that are related to uh, 
sociopaths or psychopaths like that need to be treated yeah. because it, it improves their quality of life. It it helps them yeah. cope with stuff, and it's it's a very difficult thing to talk to someone and try to get them to you know transition when they they their reality doesn't line up with everyone else's. Um, but on that, you know, I've I've had jobs where it's been incredibly difficult because of the the management and the executives and it was i've i've been in in workplaces where it's so so toxic that yeah i'm i'm a very very passive person i'm very calm and collected or i try to be um we all have our moments (laughs) but the the ceo was trying to get me to yell at people for doing for not doing work that they weren't trained in and I, 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 it was difficult and I, I, I had to stand up and try to mitigate everything and ultimately ended up leaving. And, you know, it was, it was such a, a debilitating experience because it feels that you are powerless. It feels that you, you know, have no choice. And me leaving that company, sadly, I, you know, I, I left it. I, I really enjoyed the people I worked with, but it was it was such stress. It wasn't worth the cost. It wasn't worth like the benefits. It wasn't worth the status. And coming out of that, it was it, you know it took a while to kind of like transition into understanding what a healthy workplace is. Um, on that note, when we when we talk about that, like I I was fatigued. I was emotionally drained, and. Yeah. I was working something like probably like nine, nine, ten hours a day. Um, yeah. You know, and when I'm studying esports, I see these 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 athletes like video game athletes basically dedicating eighteen hours a day to practice. This is their full time job, and it comes with a lot of benefits, but there's also risk of you know physical injuries, the stress and anxiety of performance, and they're burning out in their career at a really young age, around 22 to 25. You know, and, and now that we're all kind of working on the computer all day, you know, I, I can last about eight hours and then I, I need to take a break every now and then. But I'm also working on my own schedule and I allow myself yeah. breaks and I give myself that space to unwind and be more productive. But what about someone in an office that's working a ton of overtime, you know, that is yeah. just, you know, in a very stressful environment, do they potentially, yeah. um, you know, suffer the same risk of injuries and burnout and stress? Oh my gosh, like absolutely, right? I mean, absolutely. There's, there is so much self care, and I'm glad you brought up athletes because that's a that's a really interesting profession. Because to your point, there is a they're always working, and there is quick burnout because of that exact fact. And you think about working as like let's take tom brady i don't know much about him i'm not not a big fan but i do know that he has uh, a very regimented diet that he follows an incredibly regimented workout routine and so all of that is you know is in preparation and because of his work so not only is uh you know work and life so deeply intertwined with each other um quite literally the food and he's putting in his body directly correlates to his work that's 
that's stressful. He's been able to make it work as a, what, 42-year-old now and have just this phenomenal record. I know sports balls. I'm not a huge football fan, but (laughs) I think somebody as, like, in this space who's had all these accolades, and to your point, they usually do burn out early. He's somebody that didn't. And I think... Um, I think I have some thoughts there. And in the world of work, um, we are often very similar as executives, as leaders, you know, especially those of us who have teams that depend on us. Mm. So while while Tom Brady is consuming organic food and I am consuming wine, uh, <laughs> it's both the same sort of concept. You know, there's a, a modicum of self-care. He mm. knows that um, if he does X, X is going to result in a better uh, experience for his team and potentially a win, right? So the, all the all the grass that he's eating is going to result in potentially a Super Bowl win, and it worked out. I know that all the wine that I drink results in tomorrow my being able to deal with the exact same problems I had to deal with today, um, and do it in a way that I've been able to decompress. And I I, do, I say that you know obviously jokingly like some degree, but but what I'm what I'm putting in there is there's some self care. So when you're when you're when you're uh, going through the motions, and especially early in your career, I was very guilty of this for ten years, probably. Uh, you can you don't get up to go to the bathroom sometimes. You are like, I just need to finish this email, and then I'll pee, and then three people stop in, and you know, everybody knows how it goes. Mm. You keep you keep pushing, but like I always say this, and I hate that you had that experience. I have had a very similar toxic workplace experience as well, in which I also left. And, and, and the thing is, is that I recognized and took a moment that what I was doing was, was fine and great. And I, I liked the money and I liked the title and I liked the responsibility, but I was dying inside. I had no time for self-care, no interest in self-care. All I was doing was working. And guess what? The company doesn't love me back. Like that's the best way that I can ever get folks, I think, to understand why do we kill ourselves for organizations? I'm not saying don't be loyal, don't do good work, don't put, give it your all, don't go, you know, as hard as you can and push, push, push and and do good stuff. But just remember for what, you know, that email can be sent tomorrow, more than likely. All of those things that you need to get off of your plate today is just not necessary when push comes to shove. We know what's truly important. What we need to do is pull back and decide what is not truly important. Not everything is a fire, setting boundaries, mm. you know, turning off. I've actually removed my e- like my work email from my phone and, uh, and asked people on my team to literally not call me unless it's a fire and just so I could decompress, just so I could take the time that I needed without getting sucked back into the vortex and that is critical and no one should ever no one should ever fault you for that now in reality a lot of people fault you for that that's why we do it because it's never good enough but i want to push back on individuals to recognize that your contributions to an organization, they're only paying you for eight hours at max a day unless you are working overtime. If you're working overtime because you want the money, great. You do you. If you're working overtime because it's required, because you can't get your shit done during the normal day, you need to figure something else out. You need to have a talk with your supervisor. You need to establish some boundaries. If you are doing it to yourself, uh, you need to have a look in the mirror 
And you need to decide what's worth it, your life or whatever job this is right now. And if, if you decide that your life is worth it and the job doesn't support that, at the end of the day, who's going to be there like to bury you? It's not going to be your job. You know, that's that's 100% true. And I was talking to a, a participant who was actually in the there's there's three elements that we've we talked about, or three levels of esports, there's kind of like the practitioner practitioner who's someone who's like kind of just grinding leaderboards for status. Um, then there's someone that's kind of entering a, a contenders rank, which is they're kind of mid level. And then you have the professional, which is they're, they're full on dedicated. That's a full-time almost, or the equivalent of two full-time jobs. And he was saying that, you know, cause I was addressing the, the toxicity in these places and the stress and the anxiety and the potential meltdown. Because like anyone, we've all had one bad day where everything is just like, it's it's not just your work. There's life situations, there's rent, there's personal Oh yeah, when it pains, it pours, yeah. Yeah. And he was mentioning, you know, that there's a, there's a level that it works on yourself, that what you're doing is actually, is, you know, you have to put some time into, into refining yourself for professional development, for growth. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a that's a difficult thing to do, to be self-aware. Um, yeah. You know, and w- how does that play into, you know, one fine, you know, maintaining that healthy workspace for yourself, but also for for your um, co-workers? So I have a terrible story to tell, and I, I'd like to just really quickly share with you uh, that I actually did a webinar Uh, a new higher orientation live video webinar from my hospital bed after giving birth to my second child. Uh, And my husband at the time stood outside my door with the door closed to ensure that nobody came in to bother me while I did this. And I tell you this story because at the time, this was my first chief people officer role. And uh, I thought that, you know, the impression everybody would have if I didn't do this brand new, I I had my son early, my water broke at work actually. And uh, I had intended to facilitate this brand new orientation. We were, I had completely overhauled our um, onboarding process, our hiring process. And so of course I wanted to be there to, you know, facilitate that first one and, you know, see it happen smoothly and whatever. And Then my water broke and uh, that was on a Friday and this next Monday was that event. And I hosted it live via video with one of my teammates and they're live facilitating it. And the CEO of our company who supported the fact that I was still going to honor my obligation to my organization, even though I just had a child and was quite literally in the hospital and really high on the good stuff um, (laughs) while I did it. And I'm a professional. I was able to get through it and all that. And was done. I was chatting with my mom and my mom, I had a team of about 40 people at this point. Just, I had like seven direct reports and then the team under them, my whole team was about 40. And my mom said, how many, how many people on your team are women? And I said, oh, I don't know, like maybe like 20, 25 or so of them are women. 
And and she was like, are any of them parents or any of them pregnant? And I was like, yeah, actually, I, our receptionist is pregnant. And I happen to oversee the administration team as well. And and she goes, is she going to think that she's expected to like answer the phones then uh, from the hospital? And I was like, ooh, ooh, uh, I'm a terrible leader. Like uh, that was a huge moment of, of like lesson for me. Uh, in the fact that I was 100% not setting the right example, um, being that, you know, representative that had influence who could really demonstrate what success looked like. Instead, I set women back like 15 years, um, at least on my team. And, uh, and I, I created unrealistic expectations and a lack of boundaries, which I, again, after chatting with my mom right after, I very, very much regretted because it wasn't my intention. My intention was to be that good soldier, right? Was to, to honor my obligations to my employers. And my mom said, what about the obligation to the son you just had? Yeah. And, and it really put things in perspective for me that I... I, as a leader, but even if I wasn't one, um, have a, a choice to make and I can choose to put myself first, my family first, my health first, my mental, uh, my mental wellness ahead of, uh, of my organization. And I, and I absolutely chose not to, and I regret it to this day. And I, I talk about it. Actually, I've never talked about it on anybody else's show, um, but I talk about it because it's such a, a perfect example of how somebody who can be such a staunch ally and champion for people um, and rights, particularly for women, um, that I could fuck it up so bad, you know, and in, in, in the early 2000s. Um, and so it, it it's one of those really interesting lessons that has stuck with me this entire time because there's so much that we directly affect and so much that just our own actions and our own decisions um, between, you know, being that good soldier at work and, you know, honoring yourself and your in your own obligations for your real life, um, being with a company that doesn't understand that or being in a position as an influencer to help a company understand that because you, you have influence over that company's direction. I should have done that instead. I should have been like, what I need to champion for is paid maternity leave, not this bullshit. And, and I missed the mark. And I think that that's like, that's been a huge lesson that I've carried with me from that moment on that I would never do that again. I would always be that leader who is like, you know what? No, this is not the expectation. The expectation is, is that we all just get our jobs done. And, um, and I'm going to lead by example. I conversely worked for another great organization as a consultant, uh, when I was pregnant with my third son and, uh, I had left that organization and had, had moved on and uh, they gave every Friday off during the summer. They called it family first Fridays and the CEO and the rest of the C-suite uh, would walk around and ensure everybody left. And like th there's the opposite, right? So there's the opposite of how do I lead and, and, and set an example and really walk the talk Um you know, for my people and for everybody, I can either not, as I did with my second child, or do as I did with my third child. So it's a really interesting place to to kind of be in, but lessons to learn along the way and, and really truly taking the moment when you do kind of fuck it up and owning that. 
you know what like that it's what i get from that is a lot about growth and really kind of using your own experiences to champion for the people and that's something that i think that we overlook a lot in society we focus on so much of this this kind of like expectation that people have to be like superhuman almost and that's not the reality and it's it helps knowing that there are elements that we can make mistakes and that we can grow from and seeing that in our leaders is important and this actually gets into my my next question about employees in the workplace that are facing extreme conditions such as limited mobility you know women who are are giving pregnant need maternity leave um the mental health and the stress that deals with all of that you know as 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 a guy i can't even begin to imagine the frustrations and the you know and the stress that comes from having it to not only take care of yourself but take care of your you know your child all of the you know running around balancing out work with you know like checkups and everything because i i've the, the closest experience I can say I have is seeing my, my sister go through that and how she was kind of like, you know, I always kind of regard her as this like Wonder Woman kind of figure because to be able to to lead, you know, productions, um, manage teams, on top of that, take calls, organize stuff and care for not only her health, but, you know, the the this her children it's you know that that's intense and i don't think that and this is this is me kind of making a speculation but it doesn't seem that in the u.s we really have any kind of system that really fully takes into consideration the the well-being of of these extreme conditions of someone with limited mobility someone that is you know um even may even have like a mental health disorder such as mm-hmm. like depression or um you know high anxiety and as someone that is is you know i this is a persona that i have i i can go out and conduct my interviews but i'm socially anxious i have high anxiety when engaging with groups and sometimes like that in a workplace puts so much stress on you and it doesn't feel that there are systems what can we do or it needs to be done in order to start addressing all this? So I'm glad you first brought up the maternity leave and thank you for being empathetic about all that moms go through. I think moms are superheroes, uh, myself included. And I, I'll put myself on that pedestal with your sister and with every every other mom out there who's working and taking care of families and providing emotional support and doing our very best to, to take care of ourselves as well. And I think I think there's an often overlooked mental health component to mothers in the workplace, which we can definitely jump into if you want to. Uh, But I did want to mention that maternity leave is like the U.S. is actually one of just a few countries worldwide that does not have like a nationally paid maternity leave plan or mandate that the states pay maternity leave. And there's only a handful of states that pay maternity leave through state-sponsored programs like California is one of them, for example, but you don't get your full pay. You get 60% of your pay, um, and it's only up to 12 weeks. Most companies don't offer um, extended maternity leave, and if you're not there for a year, you actually don't qualify for FMLA. There are so many caveats to being a mother in the workplace 
that, you know, it's, it's, it's appalling. And I was really late to the game. I'd been in the world of work for 12 years before I ever had my first child. So I didn't have a lot of direct experience. And at the time, frankly, we weren't offering as a, as a society, like culture was just barely being talked about, you know, professional, excuse me, professional development uh, and training and stuff was still sort of new. I mean, we called HR like personnel back then. It was basically just box checking. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, substantial or robust benefit packages being offered. What there was, was a shift from pensions to 401ks from, you know, a traditional nine to five to now you're tethered to a device. And also we don't ever want you to leave. So let's build these mega campuses and feed you all day. But by the way, you can't take any time off and we're not going to offer any paid leave. Now I give sort of the Google campuses and and all of Facebook and all of those like a bad rap, but most of them offer paid leave too, which is awesome. But they're billion, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. So of course they can. Not everybody's in that space, but what's really disappointing as a nation, as supposedly one of the biggest superpowers of the world. And we all see what a fucking joke that is. But I, I digress a little bit. Uh, we, we really are seeing the absolute third worldness of our own country, I think, on display. And one of those is the fact that we do not pay maternity leave. But even more than that, and I'll blow your mind here, Josh, since you're a man, you may not know this. Uh, so you know what an HSA or an FSA account is? I do not. Okay, so HSA is a health savings account, uh, usually done through an employer in conjunction with a high deductible plan. A lot of times, um, companies will even put money in it. It's it's a it's a credit card, if you will, that you can use for uh, qualified medical expenses. And so how it works is when you get an HSA card, it comes in the mail, and you can't just use it. Like it's it's like tagged somehow in whatever coding that they use. Where I can't just go to like you know like the like the local restaurant and buy food with it. It won't allow that purchase. It even doesn't allow certain purchases within a store, but certain purchases are eligible, like prescriptions and things like that. So this is something that is done in conjunction with like your health insurance plan and an employer would offer it. So the health savings account, and then there's a flexible spending account. Both of those are the same concept, except one, the money carries over and one, the money does not on the FSA, it does not. So the HSA rolls, you can go year to year to year and there's maximum contributions, but None of that is none of that is super relevant. Just wanted to give you like the quick and dirty. So HSA is like a card for eligible medical expenses, prescriptions, over-the-counter stuff, da-da-da, that you can use instead of using cash that comes out of this already funded account uh, through your employer, whether it's a deduction, whether they put it in, whatever. And guess what is not an eligible medical expense that you can use your HSA card for? I'll give me I'll give you one guess. I'm going to say it's going to be related to anything regarding pregnancy or pregnancy prevention. So it's not against pregnancy prevention. It's against periods. So I cannot buy tampons, even though what? like I have no choice. Like I and, and I don't mean to get super graphic, but like I am going to bleed out of my vagina every month. That is going to happen for the whole of my life, starting at age 13 until I'm like probably in my mid 50s. That's some, that's not just me though. That's literally 50% of our population in the US. I mean, is that fair? Yeah. And you know, get graphic. This is stuff that we should be normalizing. It's, it's human. 
it's a bottom I would on my option. show. I didn't know what kind of graphic I can get on your show. Oh, go, yeah, go for it. Um, this show is really kind of regarding research and really, really informing people. If there are elements that need to be graphic, go for it. This cool. this is something that isn't. I don't think it should be triggering. I think that should be normalized. Um, I probably will let people know at the beginning of the episode just in case. But I think that's um, a good idea. Yeah. But there's a funny meme about that. I almost think you should tag that maybe in your show notes, and I'll send it to you. And it's a, I put it on our Facebook page on Not the HR Lady Today, and it's a picture of like period blood stained underwear. And, um, and it, it, you know, it talks about like exactly what sort of, I just talked about, like the, if, if you look at this and this is gruesome to you, uh, you know, like what, I mean, this happens to us every single month. And what's abhorrent is not only do we not have paid maternity leave, but we also can't use a medical spending card designed to use for medical expenses on buying tampons. However, you can get Viagra with it. I, I don't even have words. It's just say like, what? Like, it's just. Right. So it, it's just, it's so, it's just so crazy. And then on top of that, you know, there's the ongoing conversation about just regulating women's reproductive rights and whether you're pro or against um, a woman's right to choose, like here are the, the, the hard facts. If I get pregnant because I slept with a guy, I can't get pregnant anymore. Like once, just once in about a year. But if a guy slept with a woman every single day, there's a chance that a man could create 365 children. So I'm not sure why we're trying to regulate us, but since that's not the purpose of the story, what can we do? What we can do is talk about and normalize um, this sort of thing in the workplace. I don't know that that people don't know this sort of stuff happens uh, to women because why would you? like? You know, you may, I don't, you know, having an HSA card, if you're newly entering the workforce, you might not know what that is. You may be in the workforce for 10 years and nobody's explained it to you. But here's the reality of it. It's like, this is something that most organizations offer. And yet I can't buy feminine products with it, but men can get their dick hard with it. And that is just really sad, but not surprising considering we're supposed to be this super advanced country and we can't even pay women uh, for a few weeks so that they can recover from, you know, major life altering things. That's how companies can do better. I love that you also talked about mobility here in Austin. Uh, and when I was with the Alamo Draft House, we participated uh, for several years in something called Archer's Challenge, which basically um, talks about mobility in the workplace and seeing things from a different lens. And I would say that my last organization and Alamo has been closed now since COVID, but um, for the most part, but my last organization was incredibly progressive, you know, prided ourselves on our inclusivity, prided ourselves on just being an organization that tried to get it right for everybody. And when we all participated in this challenge, the first time we realized how much we had gotten wrong. And the challenge was, is that we spend an entire day doing our normal day-to-day -day work in a wheelchair. Wow. You know, yeah. So on that note, you know, on both mobility and both, you know, the also addressing like w women's reproductive rights. Like, how does that yeah. impact their mental health? How does this in in influence not only you know women but LGBTQ plus? Um, yeah. And then, what does that do for allies that are, yeah. are also in this workplace? How does that you know impact their mental health and well being?
Well, for, for both of the examples, like I just gave, and I know I expanded a little bit more on having a child, but from a mental health perspective, every, every, everything we just talked about dramatically affects our mental health. Can you imagine sitting in a hospital, um, you know, high enough on the dilaudid that they're giving me, uh, cause I just birthed a baby, but cognizant and aware enough to facilitate like this event while at the same time being incredibly anxious that like, what if the video doesn't work? You know, I'm already suffering in a place. And now on top of all the other emotions, now I have, you know, the pressures of my work and being a mother, you know, my, my pregnancy recovery and being an employee. Um, you know, when I'm, when I was in the wheelchair that day, all day long, I, I was incredibly taxing. My office was on the second floor. And there was no elevator in the building we were in. So I couldn't get to my office, which means I had to have people go get everything for me, which means I had to bother, right? Like, so it's an incredibly, incredibly mentally cha challenging for anybody, regardless if you have diagnosed issues or you don't. Um, if you're undiagnosed or even if they're just mild, everybody who faces any kind of like, marginalization or oppression in the workplace. And frankly, that's everybody who is not a cis white male. And I, and I hate to just throw that out there so bluntly, but that's the, that's the reality of it is that nobody's ever sat in the middle of a meeting um, who's a cis white male and been derogatorily called a cunt. I have. Um, nobody else, you know, who's a, who's a cis white male who has full mobility and, you know, is of just regular age and of normal kidness, right? Because that like if nobody asks like who's watching your children uh to the to our to our counterparts. And that alone is is stressful. And I wanna I wanna jump onto that, right? So the the juxtaposition between being a cis white male and then being in any other category uh is that everything was built for the cis white male. Nothing else was built for us. And that's the overcoming it every single day. And I'm a white woman, so I'm I'm blessed with a, a shit ton of privilege. Uh, there's plenty of things I don't have privilege on, but I have a lot more privilege in some. And it's I think it's recognizing, you know, all of all of that as an ally. Um, and I pick on, and I don't pick on, but cis white males I mention a lot because if it doesn't apply to you, if that's not who you are, that means you're potentially an ally. If you're sitting over there, but I'm not like that. It's like, we're not talking about you. So how does it go for allyship? Um, every person who is not a cis white male is subject to marginalization and oppression in the workplace. Whether you are LGBTQ, a person of color, BIPOC, a woman, um, you know, on the on the spectrum, you have mental diagnosed mental challenges, your ageism on either end of the spectrum. I mean, there's so many different things uh, that people have to be kind of cognizant about, aware about and talk about and then champion for that equity for all of those people. That's what allyship looks like. That's not asking us to give up your job. Right. That we're not saying like move so we can take it. We're saying scoot over. Uh, maybe let's build some things that make it more inclusive and uh, with more equitable opportunity for people who don't just look like you. And when, when all of that happens, right, when we all start becoming allies and representing that, uh, that there are 
so much, there's so much diversity of thought that's available if we just open our eyes to it, see the color, see the different, see the unique, see the age and, and create a, you know, kind of a, a beautiful utopia of like, this is how we all win. Like, that's what I'm solving for. That's how I believe, you know, we can have true representation in the world of work. That's how you truly become an ally. When you have folks on your team who, you know, quite literally uh, don't have the same treatment as you because the system is built for that not to be a thing, you have an opportunity as an ally to help dismantle that system, right? It's not getting you out of your job. It's helping others to be in there too with you so we can all be great. And don't you think if we could all just make room for everybody to win and supported the differences between us and supported and normalized things that are quite normal, like childbirth, like um, adoption, like, uh, you know, becoming your, your correct gender identity by, you know, living your life authentically and truthfully, we could all overcome uh, mental illness together and really focus on mental wellness as a society and and certainly as a workplace. And I'll tell you what, in the workplace, there needs to be no more room and tolerance for anything that is not equitable, inclusive, diverse, and, and it is not a place where people feel like they don't belong. There has to be that in every organization to help with some of the mental health challenges. And hey, if finance is more of your game. If you want to know like the the money of having a solid people strategy and investing in what wellness looks like from a mental health perspective as well, um, that's what people strategy is for. There is an ROI for this stuff. You can save money on your wild health insurance claims if you invested a little bit more potentially in a more robust mental health package. Because guess what? Now you have employees not attempting suicide. Now you have employees who are not, um, you know, potentially living, uh, you know, with risky behaviors because they don't have access to actual help. So they're self-medicating or self-soothing. There's so much employers can do there's, that there's a cost benefit uh, to doing it. And so if just being a good person isn't your jam, uh, if being money, if money motivation is, is it for you, there's a huge cost savings that can be realized by having a solid mental wellness and people strategy with your organization. And really, you know, honestly, it's really just about doing the right thing though, isn't it? Cause when I put it like that, it makes you seem like a dick. So if companies just are in it for the finance, that's, that's fine, but make sure you have people that are championing for the actual, um, purpose of designing stuff like this, right? There has to be more than just money that motivates you. But if money is a catalyst, there's money to be saved by investing in a people strategy that includes robust mental wellness. You know, on that note, what is, if, if a company lacks all of these preventative or, you know, um, resources that kind of address this as a system, what is the potential to develop um, something like depression, extreme anxiety, and then ultimately how does that impact proficiency and how does that actually potentially inhibit um, you know, the, the bottom line of a company? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the ROA that I'm talking about. So how many, like, and I, I just would want your listeners to reflect, and, and you too, Josh, for a second, like, how many times do you just sit there staring at your computer? Because guess what? You are not in the right space mentally right now. You have other things that are prohibiting you from being able to be productive that day. Um, that has happened to all of us. Is that fair? Yes, 100%. You know, and there there are moments where it might not even be something related to work. It's like the drive to work. Someone either mm -hmm. almost almost slammed me in living in Los Angeles. Like, <laughs> you know, that's that's a daily occurrence. And yeah, <laughs> like you're on the 405, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, or even when, you know, I, I, I get some some bad news or like I've had sadly, you know, like pets pets pass or i've had like and that that's that's kind of like a first world problem but like you know um i've also had moments where i've i've had friends that have have emotionally crashed and trying to be there is is difficult how do you how do you address that and that that takes a toll on you because that's an interpersonal relationship that then leads yep. into into your work life and yep. because we don't have a, it doesn't seem like we have a system or resources that we've been, you know, made aware of that, that kind of drags so many people down because then like it falls onto just the community. And sometimes like, at, you know, as a friend, I can be there, I can listen, but I, I don't try to do any psychotherapy. I don't try to like say anything because I'm not versed in that. And I know the detriment that could come out of providing the wrong advice. And we really need sure. to have more of these support system and community resources. Um, That's right. And, and that, that especially impacts us. Like, right? Especially company sponsored ones. When you work in organizations, having an organization sponsor those sorts of resources on behalf of the employees. You asked me earlier, like, you know, what are some things? Those are some things have those partnerships, develop partnerships with these, reach out to your community resources and ingrain them in your business. They want to be there and they're free a lot of times. So, you know, having that is so vital. I couldn't agree more with you. So, you know, so on that, if we're, we're continuing to address um, cost as a catalyst, you know, there, there's always this, this focus in, in business, um, that I've, I've come to kind of encounter that while it's too expensive, it, it'll take too long to implement. Are, are these excuses or are, is there validation to some of this? No, these are excuses. Like these are just excuses. And I think about it like this, the people part of most businesses have longly been, uh, the last thing to be considered, you know, the, the last budget to be approved, the one that gets the most cuts, you know, if there's stuff to be taken away when times are tough from a financial perspective, it's always within the people space. Think about it. Like we used to have learning and development. Now we don't, we like, we don't have a training team anymore. We got to get rid of people. So now we're just making the managers on board. Uh, you know, there's always these things, benefits get cut, like whenever the company is trying to save money, it's never in operations. It's always in where they can, you know, get rid of what they believe to be not intrinsically valuable. And I think that's such an antiquated way of thinking uh, because it couldn't be further from the truth. Like it is, you have money and your ridiculous spending related to conferences and i'm talking pre-covid right because that that's 
that this world of work is a slightly different and I'm sure it's going to change a little. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we hope for. But pre-COVID, I, I can tell you that me and every other C-level executive I know, and a lot of people not even in the C-suite, um, have you know wild spending during conferences, wild spending during just trips, right? I went to dinner with my boss, um, one of my bosses over the period of time who was uh, not the CEO, was earlier in my career, like early 2000s. And we spent like almost 10 grand at dinner for like six people. And he whipped out his company card. And I, that's not the first or last time that's happened. And so when you when I hear that there's no money to invest in these sorts of things, I know firsthand that that is bullshit. I have been a chief people officer in charge of budgets sitting in those meetings. What it is, is that a lack of interest because they have to cut money somewhere. They have to spend money lavishly in these places. They have to take clients out. We hired this guy at an organization uh, that I was working at, and he, uh, I think he spent like $50,000 like his first month. He took his entire, like he was wooing a client, which the client, it, you know, and that's not an uncommon practice, right? You woo clients to get them, and the wooing should be a portion of what you expect to recoup once they sign with you, right? Well, the deal he signed was like less than the amount he spent because he flew these guys to like some game in, in like a suite that he got from, and none of it was free. He spent like $50,000 and they, they signed with us and the contract was for like 15,000. And I had to go back to this, this newly appointed chief sales officer um, and have a real come to like Jesus with him and a, and a conversation about math. And I thought, like, this is such a weird day, but this is an example and a perfect of companies have no problem with that, right? Like, I'm the only one who's freaking out about, like, this is unacceptable, you know, like, as your peer, as your confidant, as your trusted advisor, as a coach to you on this team, this is this is never going to look good. And he was only with us for, like, four months because he just didn't get the memo, but but when organizations do that, tolerate that and allow for that, and then want to push back on the fact that they don't have money allocated for wellness, fuck you. Yes, you do. Uh, you need to invest in that and see the return on investment you will get from your employees. That's the thing is that nobody wants to invest in something intangible. What if I, you know, I think it was uh, Richard Branson, right, who said, you know, what if we invest in our employees uh, what if we don't, what if we invest in our employees and they leave? And then what if we, what if we don't and they stay? And like, that couldn't be, I think that's a beautiful quote because it, why would there be a fear about investing in your employees? You want them to grow and you want them to leave eventually and soar. But what you definitely want them to also do is give good word of mouth about how awesome your company was and how they helped you become the person you were, how they helped with you know, providing resources in the mental wellness space, for example, so that you could get out of your own goddamn way and move to the next level at another organization. We shouldn't be scared of that. We should be excited for that. That's not a loss. That is an amazing gain of a fan who's going to turn other people who may be looking at our organization into fans too. And when we think about it like that, when organizations start prioritizing people, that's when I believe you start seeing profits. Now, this is a long game. And a really good example would be Costco and GE. You know, they played a long game a while back. And GE was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to invest in people. And the, sh the stocks were huge and, you know, whatever. 
Costco said, no, we're going to take all this money and we're going to invest in people and give back. And they watched incremental growth. And, you know, in the year 2018, when you looked at them side by side, who was more valuable? And I'll tell you, it was Costco by a, by a long, long, long bit, like a lot, like a huge amount more. And that steady incline went straight up. That's that growth trajectory every company wants. Nobody wants to see that up and down erratic stuff. That's what you get when you don't have a solid people strategy. You might have gains right now, but it's like being a day trader. Like you may end up getting that great stock like GameStop, or you may end up losing a million dollars. Like you don't know what your life is like unless you plan for it. And that's the same with an organization. If you plan for success and you start it at the root of everything, which is you can't make the organization successful without the people who are running the business every day. If you invest in them, you see that beautiful mountain like Costco has instead of that erratic up and down swing that a company like GE has. And so if that's not more proof enough, if we're still getting pushed back, um, then I, I would just wonder what the ultimate motivations are because greed is a bitch. And that is usually where I find uh, that CEOs or people who are just not interested is they're looking for an exit so that they can make their, you know, several million bucks and exit. You know, as as a human centric designer, I've I have a lot of different mentors and they've all really kind of shed light. But what they've all agreed on is meeting a double to triple bottom line. A double bottom line is you're meeting business metrics, but you're also addressing your the people aspect of it. A triple bottom line is simply adding, then you're adding sustainability because our environment and our space really influences what are also what our interpersonal, you know, lives are going to be like. It impacts our, you know, our access to resources, um, what we're able to enjoy, kind of like the air quality, um, being able to enjoy like, you know, make less of an impact on the planet while reducing our carbon footprint, but still enjoying the quality of life that we have. And I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get to is that by investing in people and at least in hitting that double that that double bottom line, not even going all the way to the triple, but through investing in people, you're you're not you're playing you're becoming part of this what Simon Sinek would say the the infinite game the long term where those aren't just expenditures those are investments and i've i've had a mentor um early on nail this into me about business and about spending and she was telling me that when you're when you're going out and you're in your making these purchases you have to break down what is going to be you know something personal something you know for the business or something that is kind of like a meeting and you have to know what you have available where you where you need to make your investments and where what are going to be just you know pleasure spending and she she told me the the problem that comes out of just expenditures and just something that you're just carelessly dropping money on um comes back because it's not being reinvested into a system that really benefits you. And like you touched upon, when you take care of these of these employees, they may they may be leaving in the long term, but they're going to be reinvesting because those could be potential partners that start their own business. Those could be people that work at something like uh, Salesforce 
that will will be you know helping you negotiate a better contract and you have an in that will be someone that is is sending over people that are talented to your company to help you grow and meet your business needs and you know on that note too like i guess like the last part or the last question i have is we were we're all about the experience part of being a, a hxdi designer um, which is a human um, interactions, ex human experience interaction design, or design interactions. Uh, sorry, getting tongue-tied. But part of that is really kind of developing these these experiences and touch points. And I, I know that there's this aspect of, of needing to woo the client. But it sounds like there's opportunity to really develop these more personal experiences that reflect on the the culture and value that you're providing and by including this mental health as part of the system, it adds value to your proposition. And in a time where we're all kind of on the computer 24 seven, and we're almost like these esports athletes where we're on Zoom, you know, or on these virtual mediums doing work. And they're, they're, they're not playing games where like, you know, for, for recreation, where it's just like, okay, there's really nothing at stake. This is a job that idea of flow is is constant in them and it burns them out and that almost like hyper productivity of, of mastering moves mastering teamwork is is really important but this this virtual medium being on here on the computer for everything that we do starts to kind of encroach on that 18 hours of practice on a computer what does that do to us and what 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 do we need in order to, you know, one, craft virtual experiences that we can use as companies for the long term? And then how do we connect that with mental health? I love this question. And I, I feel I feel it so deeply because I have had and talked about very openly over the last year, um, my own mental health challenges during this time of virtual work. I am used to being on the road. I'm used to traveling. I'm used to, you know, hugging people and being in person and having that real emotional and physical connection that I think so many of us, um, introverts and extroverts, you know, it's not even people who are just super people people. Like we all crave the ability to connect. And I think that's why, I think that's why this the new clubhouse stuff um, surprisingly has become so popular. And, and it's so interesting to me about why, and I, and I promise I'll answer your question, but you know, I like to go on different tangents. And I want to talk quickly about like the burnout of the virtual stuff. We're all on our computers 24 seven. Before you and I got on uh, the recording part of the show, I had told you that I was on the phone and that's such a, we, and I wasn't on Clubhouse. I was like on my phone on a call. But I think that's the appeal of Clubhouse because I know for me, um, I you know, I'm doing a Clubhouse later today uh, and it's all about don't suck as a boss. It's about leadership. And it's a, you know, we go in and you can actually have real conversations and deep dive topics with people. And frankly, it takes a lot of the, of the pressure of being on camera or even just having your computer open because I can take my phone into the kitchen. If I'm not the one speaking, uh, it, there's so much flexibility. And then also there's not the anxiety of having to be on camera. It's a really different animal when you have to see yourself 
all the time. That doesn't do a lot of good for your mental health, even if you are an attractive person, even if you believe you are an attractive person. Looking at your own face all day long is not good for you. Sitting in one place is not good for you. This is not how we normally behave. You know, we're sedentary when we're normally at least moderately active, whether that's just walking. There was a slight drop in the call at that moment. But Tara was able to get back with us within a couple of seconds. That sounds crazy. I'm on social media. I can jump on and talk to whomever uh, at any given time. But it, it's different. There's just something intrinsically different. I think employers, uh, I've seen a lot of employers sending these great care packages. And I'm not talking about crap, you know, like don't send people crap. But like sending these great care packages to their employees just to have that kinesthetic tangible work something that that you can touch you know that swag you left in your office when you didn't know that was the last time you were going to be there like just the interesting you know ways to kind of engage and connect a little bit differently whether that's clubhouse whether that's you know getting your whole team on a clubhouse you know just your team in a private room and chatting candidly like you guys used to when you sat around the table everybody get a drink and let's talk like coming up with different ways to engage in a more pre-COVID normal way, um, especially now, I think is just so critical because it's overload. It's so much. We, we are never not connected to something and that, that's, that hurts. That's hard. That That's mentally taxing. It creates depression and anxiety in people who may have otherwise not experienced much of it. I'm a perfect example of that. I have not had, and I'm fortunate in that way, a ton of depression and anxiety in my life even though I've gone through some very traumatic experiences in my childhood, I, I've processed them. I've already gone through therapy and I don't, I, I feel like I, I'm not in that space. And I find myself, the more I'm sitting here on my computer, the more I'm, you know, every day is just the same. And I don't have any outlet um, other than the, the few virtual mediums that, that we're, we're all sort of given where it, it took its toll on me. And as an employer, and as uh, as a leader and an influencer in the leadership space where people look to, I wanted to talk about it out loud, openly, and let everybody know that I was struggling um, so that we can all talk about it together. But the ways that we can help as just your fellow person uh, and as much as, as leaders, as much as companies, is to start getting crafty and creative by sending people stuff, by talking on the telephone. Hey, can I call you? I know this sounds weird, but like, can we just call each other? And it's these little nuanced things that can really just make a huge difference um, in times like this and in moving forward, because like the world of virtual work is not going anywhere. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, to clarify for the audience, I didn't mean to say that like we should be bereft of experiences because you know something like having like a, a company shirt that is like cool makes me feel a part of the of the work culture makes me feel a part of the community there having yeah. you know this this space to talk having being able to to bridge connections having something like a small collectible like a mug makes me feel a part of all that and it goes a long way what i what i meant to say for the audience is when we're trying to onboard people at first i think there's a need to kind of make better investments in the way that we craft these packages and we, the way that we woo people um because Absolutely. It, it 
you know, it's not legitimate to the culture. It's not legitimate to who we are. And I think there's a very strong value proposition in showing that a company would offer mental health packages, a company would offer a culture and a community there that fosters and nurtures professional development that extends beyond just kind of like some kind of flab and that these these elements complement that and that that is a multi-channel way to really kind of push because once you once you feel a part of the community once you feel a part of something larger than yourself and i and i discovered this in um exploring game design and and community um development uh through my previous project uh quirkspace is that once you once you really look into being something part of like that's more epic there's an intrinsic motivation that drives you and that kind of leads to higher productivity that leads to better engagement that leads to you caring about each thing that you're doing um and this is really backed by jay mcgonagall's work uh reality is broken and in that book she kind of talks about this uh example of of halo where this this example is where they made this whole campaign of trying to reach a certain kill count as a community and it was something like like a million or something and all of the the players that contributed at least one kill were like yeah well it's just like one or two you know aliens we just we defeated but it it contributed to this large-scale thing and we took on we made a contribution to this huge number and we're part of that community when you translate that over to work and these um virtual experiences or even a tangible experience or actual it it's about realizing that you know is this is not just for you but you are part of a community that is striving towards you know something greater and this is where a double or triple bottom line really helps kind of invest that and that investment in people that that investment in culture is huge and you know as as i'm kind of going out looking for work too one of the things that i always look for is like okay are they hitting a double bottom line are they hitting a triple bottom line what's their work culture like what are they offering me in terms of like mental health and well-being what about community and professional development and all of those things are part of the value proposition and i i would be more inclined to work with something that is something like a nonprofit that's hitting all those for a slightly less um for slightly less pay than i would to a system that just offers pay and a status and is bereft of, of all that and i think that's like you said is where we're trying to we're starting to transition and you see it a lot in the values that are reflected by millennials and gen z and you know any anyone can have a great business idea but if you don't have the team that's dedicated and has a skill set that could help you you're you're not going to be able to actualize them so <laughs> I, I i completely agree. i completely agree with you like, and I think you hit the nail on the head, like Gen Gen Z millennials and like the latter part of Gen X, because that's me. I was born in 1980. So like, I'm barely hanging on to the millennial Gen Xer, but like, I believe it's, it's that it's, it's this that is no longer tolerant of 
and is not and is willing to accept less money, but not in exchange of slides, right? Not in exchange of shitty snacks, not in exchange of even cold brew kombucha. Like we're not taking less money for your crap. We want actual stuff. You know, we want tangible uh, total packages. And I, I truly believe that that there are plenty of people out there who are not going to be wooed by the nonsense anymore, whose values are aligned more with like, what kind of wellness do you offer? What is your, what is your stance on Black Lives Matter? How do you live that on a day-to-day basis? Tell me about LGBTQ representation in your organization. The more we normalize asking that stuff in the interview process um, and getting recruiters comfortable with understanding what that is. And even as a, as someone who works in the people space and leads recruiters um, as people leaders, championing your teams to discuss what we think about those things, how we approach it, what, you know, so people don't have to ask, let us tell you, let us make sure you can find that information. Let us be transparent when we share why you should want to work here. Um, I think the more that, that that gets normalized and the more we stop trading real tangible things that are going to better us as humans for the instant gratification of not having to pay for coffee today, uh, instead, I can just get to work early and get it there for free, which means I'm just going to start working longer. I mean, that's the whole idea. The 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 getting rid of like pensions and getting rid of a lot of more robust benefits were to save companies money. Like everybody should take a breath and think about the mega campuses. Those were not designed for you. Those were designed for you to work longer. Those were designed for you uh, to get a really cool benefit at the with the company getting a even cooler tax break. So like there's there's so much that I think people are just looking more for now. And to your point, that has everything to do with like what does your organization stand for? Does that align with me? And what are you going to do for me as a whole person? Yeah, and you know I I don't want to encourage anyone to you know, not understand their value and go for lower pay. But, you know, I was giving an for example, sure. but I just, I just want to make that clear for the audience. Um, for sure. I'm, I always get your pay. I'm a huge financially driven person from like, you should get what you're, what you're worth. You shouldn't sacrifice it at the expense of a company who does that. It should just be more important than like the ancillary benefits a company offers, right? I'd rather have more robust mental health, uh, than I would have kombucha. Oh, 100%. And it sounds like there's really kind of an opportunity to make a large social change in the way, in the relationships that employees, that the company's brand between employees and employers through asking these questions. And it sounds like that kind of falls onto, onto us to really champion that and asking, you know, at an interview about what are the, what, do you offer for mental health? What do you offer for well-being? What do you offer for this? Yeah. And on that note, what what should what kind of questions should we be asking to really kind of bring awareness or kind of emphasize that to employers? Yeah, I think as a as an applicant, you asking just point blank, like tell me about what your total package looks like. And for me, that includes what your diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy is. Uh, I'd love to see what you offer from a mental health perspective in your benefits plans specifically, um, you know, and whatever else is important to you. I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, but really at, there's no, it's not wrong to inquire about uh, organizations 
you know, stance on certain topics that are important to you. It's not, it's not, un, it's not unacceptable. It might be uncommon, but it's not unacceptable to want to fully understand what sort of packages are available from a health perspective. Because let's say you're a trans person. You want to, and you, you're pre-op. Maybe you want to go and that be covered. That's important to you because you've been working, you, you were on hormones, like whatever it looks like for you, right? Um, you want to know that that's going to be covered. So I don't need to disclose that to my employer. I don't need to like shout it from the rooftops. I can, or I can just ask, you know, I, I would love to learn more about what your comprehensive health plan looks like and what is covered and what isn't. When we start normalizing even just asking what pay is, how many interviews, and I want everyone to, again, to just reflect that's, that's listening. How many interviews have you gone on where you don't know what the salary is? Like maybe you put in, they ask for your salary expectations or whatever, but if you're anywhere that's not an established like hourly wage, or you're in something that has uh, a public structured, uh, you know, salary bands, which is not very many organizations have that. So like if you're a government worker or a teacher, et cetera, like maybe, but for the majority of like corporate worlds of work, um, you might go through five interviews because we've been conditioned not to discuss our pay, not to ask our salary. And isn't that crazy? Like I'm talking to you and investing all these hours of time. And I don't even know if we're in the same like universe. And I'll tell you a real example of this. I did this. Uh, when I was like, I think it was between uh, my Dale Carnegie days and my first uh, chief people officer role uh, with Lone Depot. And uh, and I went through, I don't know, I think I even flew to like Baltimore uh, from California and did all of that. And when, when push came to shove, they offered me like $75,000 and I was already making like 180,000. And I just had assumed with the size of the company the space that I'm in, like kind of my background, um, I assume their, you know, their background to be all the financial research I did. It was like gross. I mean, like a hundred thousand dollars under what it should be, but I was so conditioned to never ask because that's like the kiss of death, right? You can't ask what the job pays. Wait, what? Like when you actually say it out loud, it's so absurd. And, and yet we all do it. So I think we not we not only need to start normalizing asking for what else is included, but really talking about the whole thing. The one question I hate recruiters asking is like, you know, why do you want to work at our organization? And it's like, bitch, I need a job. Like, you know, like, I, like how do you answer that question? And and certainly sometimes there are more interesting answers than that. I'll tell you that um, I have applied for roles in my past where I was really excited about the company. So that's an easy answer, but that is not always the case, especially in the days of COVID right now where everybody's unemployed and everybody's applying to every goddamn job that makes as much sense as possible just so they can go back to work. Do not ask me why, why this company, because I'm going to end up giving you a bullshit answer. Is that what you want? Like, I don't know yet why this company, but I need a job and I'm good at this work. And here's my background. Does this match? Like, it's like the dumbest question you could possibly ask. How full of yourself are you? So let's, let's stop making questions about, um, you know, at the end of the interview, when you're asked, when you're given the opportunity to ask the company questions, we're all supposed to come up with meaningful and thoughtful and next steps and, and all that's important. Uh, but the other thing that should be normalized right then and there is let's discuss the total compensation package. And I do need to learn a little bit more about what your organization's stance is on 
and then talk about the issues that are important for you. This is a two-way, mutually beneficial conversation. You need them, they need you, which means the balls are in both courts, like equally, or at least they should be, right? I get that one has the position to like hire you and one doesn't, but it's, they shouldn't hire you because of your bullshit answer on why you want to work at their company. Like you're trying to work at any company that will have you at this point. I got on a tangent about that. I'm really sorry. I got really fired up, yeah. but it's, it's, it's just normalizing everything, right? From why are we giving companies five hours of our time talking with people, you know, in all these different levels, and we still don't know what even the job is about. And that's all of us. We all do that. We need to stop doing it because we only do it because we've been conditioned to do it. There's no reason that that makes any sense that we continue to to not ask questions of organizations that are actually meaningful instead of just like the bullshit, you know, give me give me an overview of what the communication looks like organizationally. Is it an approachable executive team? Like, stop with the bullshit, you know, <laughs> like ask the questions that actually matter. And then we can normalize all of this just being people at work because that's what it is. We're all people and we should treat each other with the kind of respect people deserve. And that includes employer employee relationships. 100%. And, you know, I think that this sounds like it ripples into a, a larger thing, um, you know, because exploring from exploring esports and looking at how that's kind of this performance thing, um, with very high stakes when you transition when you just shift the players of that and kind of the the system it's just it's a really like intense work condition and then that kind of overlaps with you know with work with economic aspects policy aspects um you know so you know social impacts and by making these these shifts it kind of starts moving all the other things that are attached to it. And it's a, it's a wicked problem in the sense that there's all these things that are over, you know, like overlapping. And would it be safe to say that in making these changes to how we address this in the workplace that we can start making like a lot of like larger ripples? Absolutely. That's exactly the idea is, is to start the conversation. That's exactly what my show and my brand and my company is all about, right? Is, is starting to affect and have, starting to affect change, starting to have these conversations, starting to normalize it. I love to tell this story. I've told it on a number of, of shows, my own included, but it's the perfect example of, of how, how important everybody's individual voice is because it turns into a tidal wave. So a great example would be when George Floyd was murdered at Starbucks and everybody was Black Lives Matter logoed masks and pins and everybody was really supportive, you know, in that moment, just the world over of Black Lives Mattering. And uh, Starbucks came out with a really strong stance that their employees could not wear anything that was emblazed with Black Lives Matter. And it was less than 24 hours that they reversed their decision. And the reason that they reversed their decision, gross and wild outrage at their at their, their decision in the first place by not only customers, but employees as well. And it was felt as a huge tidal wave of bad 
depressed because it was a bad decision. And so what happened? Not even 24 hours later, they reversed their decision, you know, talked about, oh my God, we made a huge mistake. It's a little performative. I get that. But the power of our collective voice to affect change, uh, it can it can dramatically shift even the largest of organizations' thought processes. So to think that your voice doesn't matter would be absurd. Your voice matters. Like that's why it's so important for all of us to start yelling out no silent allies because in order to be an ally, you can't stand by silently. 100%. And, you know, I, I don't want to push out my own personal views because this is research, but as someone, like, if I were to step out of the researcher role and not just kind of, like, try to be unbiased and everything, I would 100% agree with you. And, you know, I, I conduct this research... And I, and, I, and I will go to people that have opposing views um, because it, it shows kind of like the systems. It shows perspectives and it shows so much. And as someone that is an ally, as someone that is trying to make these, these changes, I, I want to be unbiased in the research so that it really stands on its own. And this, this is amazing. Um, we're, we're at the end of the show. But I want to say thank you for all the time that you've you've provided, all the insight and all the expertise that you've shared with us. Um, Josh, thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. I appreciate you having me. As a, as a before we go, I would I would really love uh, to to have you share how audience members can connect with you on your show, engage with you, and what kind of services you offer because you you um, are a public speaker. You are someone that conducts these workshops and you have years of experience on your site on on your site there is there is um a pr package or a um, press kit and there is there is one aspect um say what are people saying and one one statement your talks about uh someone that is a light-skinned hispanic and mm-hmm. as a light-skinned Hispanic myself, and I and I see these changes, and I see the the impact it has on community, and the benefits it comes down with, that really resonated with me. And these seem like very very strong, connected, and expressive um, backings to the not only the authenticity of of your presentations, but also the impact that it has. Um, so what services you offer and then how can people get in touch? Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm really glad that it resonated with you. I'm incredibly fortunate that so many people have taken the time to reach out to me and share like what my work uh, and what my show and sort of the impact I'm making has done for them personally. So thank you for, um, for bringing that up because it's part of why I included it in there. I'm really incredibly proud of the work that I do. And I'm really incredibly proud of all the people who choose to use their voice in an allyship um, way, because that's what it takes, especially if you come from any place of privilege. Uh, And all of us do to some degree, you know, and we all have influence within our own sphere. So being able to really make and affect that change that, that it touches people in such a way has been uh, wildly 
important to me and really pushes and propels me to continue the work. So you can find me at Not The HR Lady. Again, my name is Tara Furiani. Uh, the best way to find everything about what I do is just on notthehrlady.com. Uh, from there, you can see any live events we have coming up and we've got several. Uh, we have several different shows. Uh, I'm on a lot of other people's shows, much like I'm on this one now. Uh, I also have... Uh, a coaching community that I offer uh, at coolassclasses.com. So I do a lot of uh, coursework and I also do private uh, coaching session for sessions for executives. So at, that you can find that at Cool Ass Classes. You mentioned before that um, I wrote a book called Fuck Your Office Snacks. It is available on my website as well. Uh, and my company is really honestly just uh, an organization that is dedicated to getting the fuckery out of the workplace. We honestly provide... Um, that, I mean, helping you develop your people strategy on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, women in leadership, breaking through, being working parents, mental wellness, workforce planning, organizational change, crisis management, so, so much more. So we work with organizations all over the world uh, on exactly this, helping you build your people strategy. Sometimes an unbiased expert coming into your organization can really help even if you have people who make this is not everybody's primary area of discipline. This has been mine for almost 20 years. I've been a chief people officer for 12 of those 20 years and only recently started my consultancy back in 2016, but really started it uh, here at the beginning, actually in March, unintentionally at the start of COVID. We were supposed to launch our show, if you can believe it, March of 2020. It was that first weekend that the whole world got shut down. We were supposed to be at HR Transform, which is a huge international organization where we were going to be launching our show from uh, because most of the people there are people we've worked with, uh, organizations and companies and other HR leaders uh, that we've lent, I've lent my expertise to, to help build their strategy, to help get their company into the new world of work because that is where it is going. That's where everybody needs to get. So we can definitely help from a consulting perspective, but... Uh, we can also help just through some of our works, through our shows, uh, through our events, and, and certainly through uh, the various books and other published works that we do. So I would love for everyone to connect with me on Not The HR Lady, super active on LinkedIn, super active on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the socials. Uh, and then we do our show every Thursday live at 7 p.m. with a live after show with all of our guests. So uh, if any of your listeners are around at seven o'clock, we premiere uh, that week's episode. Next week is called Please Don't Fear the Tech. Uh, and it's all about technology and representation. Uh, and we'll do a live chat after that show ends at about eight o'clock until about nine o'clock. So we do a, a live video after chat with the guests of our show. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, and everyone that is tuning in, thank you for, for checking out the show. Uh, check out, check out uh, the HR, not the HR lady.com. And until next time, stay fantastic. Stay red. Thank you.